I'm Julian Wilcox, and welcome to Indigenous 100, the podcast series where we interview 100 of the most inspiring Indigenous thought leaders from around the world. We must thank Tamangai Paho, who have funded this series of Indigenous 100. Thank you, Tamangai Paho, for your support of the podcast and all of the Indigenous content that you fund. For today's episode, it's a real treat for me, not only because I get to talk to one of the cool kids from Varsity that I looked up to back in the 90s, but someone who was a business leader recognised throughout the world. Yes, a business leader, a business owner, and a sports franchise holder. Rachel Tolale has many responsibilities in governance and business, but at the core of it all, is Fano, from her upbringing with her Māori father and her Pākehā mother, all the way through to her developing businesses she knows nothing about. So what motivates someone's fearlessness to be able to delve into the unknown and still become a world business leader? This is her story. It's Rachel Tolale, Indigenous 100. <laughs> Rachel, tēnākoe. Welcome to Indigenous 100. It's awesome to have you here. Uh, and awesome to have you with us uh, and to have a little chat. You know, in Varsity, you were always one of the cool kids. <laughs> I mean, uncomfortable but true. <laughs> no, it is true because it, it always appeared to many of us, um, present company included, that you always had a plan and you always knew what you were going to do. I don't know if that's true. Was it true? I actually don't know if it... I don't think I had a plan. Really? No, I definitely didn't have a plan. I think, um, other than to get through, yeah. I think though, I probably was thinking anything is possible, yeah. I, that, which is a bit of a rule for life anyway. Anything is possible and really what's the worst that could happen. So, you know, you get through your law degree. My plan though was, if I do think about it now, was to go and be a lawyer. But I also remember getting to the end and doing all of the cocktail parties where you run around and be your best self <laughs> and... The company of really, you know, older partners of law firms <laughs> who proceeded to ask me things like, you didn't do that lady law, did you? Which I <laughs> actually did. Really? Uh, closely followed by, did you do that, you know, Maori law? And I was like, oh, I did that too, actually. Um, you know, no one wanted me. And no one offered me a job, which, which probably wasn't part of my plan. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a plan for life, probably not so much. A plan to get through, for sure. When you said the P word, I thought you were going to say another P word, not partner. Old. <laughs> yeah. No, no. No other P words coming out of my mouth. <laughs> is, that, is that what happened, though? Is that yeah, what people said? Yeah, I did. I went to the... Lady uh, law and Māori law. That is... The, those are the questions that I was asked a couple of times. Oh, that, you know, but... It, look, we can chalk it up maybe to the times, but... Um, and we don't need to talk about how long ago it was. It was quite some time ago. <laughs> but that was that was what happened at the end of it. So I had these intentions of getting my law degree. Um, like all law students, you come out thinking that you know everything and why wouldn't anyone want me? Um, but, yeah, I, I was not rolling in offers. And so I switched gears and ended up going through into New Zealand Trade and Enterprise instead. That's interesting because I've read somewhere that you are quite a fastidious and very steady planner now that you always have a plan when did when when you went to trade and enterprise did you have a very clear idea then of what you were going to do or was it just literally landing on your feet every time you moved i think at the time 
I was gate crashing events that my father was attending with the Māori Enterprise team because he was exporting. Right. And and I really loved the nature of the conversation. It was really positive. It was you know, you, it was about trading your way into prosperity. And I'd just spent four years understanding how you might litigate your way out of a situation as opposed to trade, which is what he was involved with. And that was really positive. So I liked the way that that felt and. I was at so many of those events that the then manager of the time said, like, you're here a lot. Do you just want a job? Um, which I said, that would be great. Thank you very much. <laughs> and he hired me as the team administrator, which was a glorified term for, you know, making coffee and filing papers. <laughs> and and I went in under that guise. But I was very happy to go in. I just, I think, uh, do I have a plan? I had a plan for... Um, well, having a job that could take me out of university, that was the first yeah. step. I liked the environment that I found myself in. I was learning more. You know, as I say, you're a law student, so you think you know everything until you go into that environment and it works out. turns out, you know, you know nothing. Uh, but very happy to learn, which is what I did for the next two or three years. I do want to talk more about the team administrator and potentially learning biosmosis, yeah. what you gain biosmosis. But to come back to the your law life, <coughs> particularly as a student, I mean, it was such a vibrant time, mm-hmm. right? There were so many talented people. You know, some have gone on to be MPs nowadays. Um, very good friend of yours, Corinne's in them around the scene mm-hmm. at the time. And there was also a really active... Uh, proactive faculty team. I mean, Karen Fox, yeah. now Judge um, Karen Fox, um, Andrew Edwards and the like. Mm-hmm. What kind of impact did, the, did that community have on you and what you were able to do when you eventually ended up at Trade Enterprise and other places? It was a, um, it was a really interesting time for me because I, I initially enrolled in law and uh, medicine when I went to uni. And I rolled into enrolment day and I was lined up in the M line for medicine, I think that's how it went in those days. And I got to the front of the line and I had two thoughts. One was, I can never do another second of calculus and chemistry. I will lose my mind. Uh, the other was, I don't know if I'm built as that carer. You know, like in my household, if somebody is unwell, I'm not the first person they go to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it's, you know, I'm just not that person. Empathy is a thing, and I work really, really hard at it. Yeah. But the idea of a lifetime as, a, as an actual professional medical carer, I'm yeah. not sure I was built for it. So I just shuffled left into the law line because it was the next letter in the alphabet. Um, but I was too late to get in, so I had to go through the Māori uh, quota program right. at the time. And that was probably the best thing that could have happened to me. I had great grades. I had, I think, got an A bursary. So I, I probably could have gone other routes, but I went through the, the quota system. And that introduced me to a whole world that I'd never even been a part of previously. I actually, you know, we were, it's not an uncommon story, Māori father, Pākehā mother, my mum probably pushed us more towards anything Māori than dad did because Mm. he was dealing with, you know, his own upbringing in that sense. Um, So I was thrust into a full noise Māori space from the get-go. I, in fact, met Karenza in the Wharipaku at at Te Heranga Wakamarae and we were both freaking out. (laughs) you know, what are we doing here? We don't know anyone. This is really overwhelming. Uh, I came through at the same time as, a, you know, Quentin Duff came through with me. Oh, yeah. um, Joe Tarpot, you know, so yeah. great and interesting Quentin Hitter came through at the same time. So a great cohort of people that you immediately bonded with, but in a very new and interesting and foreign um, but eye-opening environment. So the influence of the lecturers like Andrew and Karen was, I think, for me... 
maybe it was permissive. You know, you saw people who were being authentically them mm. in a career that they chose. And so I was learning what that looked like. Yeah, because you've also mentioned a couple of times that it's really important to be authentic in, in whatever you do. And, you know, similar kind of experience for a lot of varsity students at the time, either Māori father or Māori mother, Pākehā father, Pākehā mother. And they go to places like Te Renga Waka, um, and it feels like quite a comfortable place. And when you're at a university, like that's really cool, you know, to be have to have that as a kind of a, a support mechanism. What people may not understand, though, is that... Um, that, you know, identity and culture and heritage is something people struggle with mm. a lot, which is something that might surprise people about you because, you know, we've always seen you involved in things like Whakatū and Kono and that kind of stuff and not really realising that the identity and culture part, particularly when you go to a place like university, is that it might be a natural thing to go to Te Ringa Waka, but it sounds like that wasn't the case with you. Was that No, was... it wasn't. It was, um, I found it, I had to really push myself into that space really? because yeah wow. yeah um oh I must have carried it off so well <laughs> um <laughs> but you know I did I, I didn't have that at all um wasn't you know hyper connected at home at all in fact um almost by that stage my grandmother had um passed it was my uh, her sister who really kept us connected Kiripuai Te Omarere so she was you know stalwart Rokawa. Um, but, you know, even that, it, if you're not there all the time, it's not – and you didn't grow up in that, you've got to find your way to connect back into it. So, you know, having a space like Te Rangawaka was beautiful because you, it started to wash over you mm. and, and draw you into it. But, no, that was um, – I wouldn't say it was ducked water. Wow. Mm. What about the leadership aspect? Because, again, you know, um, being one of the cool kids, as you were... That is you were... actually not true. I just... <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean it's not true? I don't think that was true. I mean, I just think we had, like, an amazing group. Okay, I was the one who... I, I do recall we created a position within the faculty, the Māori and Pacific Law Students Coordinator. It was the first time that we'd created it. Mm-hmm. So we created it, and then I stepped into it, and as a result of that, got an office, which turned into sort of an offshoot of the marae, I was down the hill, it was one one hundredth of the size, but there were routinely, you know, meetings in there and people taking a quick nap. Um, <laughs> but, it, you know, this is, I think, the one of the things as well, you look for ways, or I have looked for ways to um, just cut some of the grass in different ways, and so creating that position, uh-huh. so then we could create a little bit of support for the Māori students who were coming through the quota system or the Pacifica students who, quite frankly, you know, had if we had little voice, they had no voice. Mm. Um, and even now, in retrospect, I cringe a little bit in us banging them together. So I'm sure it's not the case now, but that's just another way of doing that. Yeah, and I think I think people might have the misconception that events where Maori students get together, I think we call them hui whakafanangatanga. <laughs> you have to buy tickets to it. Mm. <laughs> but they're kind of important, right? Again, it's mm. that it's that building community within a community. And if you don't have that, people, you're right, those who are not connected don't have any other way of acknowledging, let alone reinforcing or reinvigorating their kind of cultural identity, which is really important, particularly as you go to university and then post-university going into, into a career. But it always seemed to me that you were kind of in that leadership circle even then. So it hasn't surprised me where you've ended up, but you sound like you weren't aware of that. Or that, or that you weren't aware of the fact that people thought that you were kind of seen as a leader within our Māori community within university. 
No, I didn't actually, and that's not um, that's not you know a fake humble moment. That is, you know, that's that's true. I think what it is is that I really love people, mm. and I really love being around people. Um, I really don't like, you know, some people you're introverts and you're extroverts. I know which end of the spectrum I'm on. Um, so for that fact, I get energy from being around people, and so when you can have that engagement and you know touch a lot of lives. That A makes me happy and B gives me a source of energy. Well, um, then we're all thankful you didn't become a lawyer. So, <laughs> so yeah, when did too. you, you know, as a, as a trade and enterprise um, office administrator, I forget the exact title that you gave us, um, team, administrator. team administrator, when did you know that, that you were on the right path then? When did you realise that this is the pathway that I can forge a career with and work with people and do something good here? I tell you when it wasn't. It was it wasn't when the manager at the time put his head outside of his office and said to me, "Could you maybe just make us a few coffees?" <laughs> and I think my head snapped back and my eyes snapped yeah. back in my head so hard. Yeah. He knew what had just happened, and I was like, "That's no problem." <laughs> and I went and made the worst <laughs> coffees ever. You know, in my head, I was like, "I have a law degree." Oh my gosh, yeah. you know. Um, but it was a great, excellent learning moment. Um, but what the, when I did know that it was for me is. Um, and I actually think others might have seen it before I did. I, when I went into trade and enterprise, it was the first time I'd encountered my first champion, if you like, and that champion was Fran Wilde, and she was the CEO at the time. And champions for me are those people who see a spark of something in you, and then they put you into sink or swim moments. They just throw you into a place that they know you'll rise to the challenge for. Um, but you yourself might not have grasped that moment mm. as quickly as they did. So she moved me from Wellington to Auckland after one year of being in the organisation, and then she moved me from Auckland to LA one year after that as Trade Commissioner. And I was 25, I think, at the time. So very young, wow. very green. Um, but, you know, the thing about champions is they put you in a situation and they're never far below you. They know you can do it, and it's something that I've tried to do in my life mm. with others now. But she did that to me, and, I was, and so that's when I knew that there was an expectation on me to rise to that challenge, and and so you do that. But how do you know you're a swimmer, not a sinker? I think it's the way that I was built. I know that I was built in a home that was super supportive by parents who made me believe that anything was possible. Okay. And so for that fact, really the only thing between me and, and, and that success is me. So I either rise to it or, or you opt out, and I... Don't often opt out. Wow, that's quite fascinating. What's the thought process that goes on when you're doing that, though? Like, you know, I mean, I know people, there'll be people who, who might have had the same opportunity or similar similar opportunities. Mm. It's going, no, I can't do that. It's not, you know, it's not me or it's too soon or I'm too young or too green or whatever it might be. Yeah, and I think that is, and I also think we all think that, yeah. but I think that I love the idea of conquering the seemingly unconquerable. You just, and I sort of refuse to believe, unless you are literally unqualified for a position, I mean, by way of you know, a, a doctor or the mm. things that you genuinely need qualifications for, um, I think, why couldn't I do that? I think I've got enough in me, in the soft skill space, and enough drive, and enough support, and I know enough people for the direction that I might need to fill in the gaps, that you'd give it a go. What, what does soft skills mean? Um, maybe the, the in, like curiosity for learning, um, the ability to meet people 
and understand people. So there's things that you, I think you learn over the course of time as opposed to reading, learning, you know, repeating. So there's the sorts of skills about you as a person, confidence, mm. um, being able to articulate yourself, being able to enter a room, feel deeply uncomfortable and work out how you push through that. And that doesn't always happen. There are lots of occasions still when you can walk into situations and feel like that unicorn, that mythical creature where no, one thing is not like the other. Yeah. But but work out how to deal with that emotion. That's Okay, so that's different, though, to, say, imposter syndrome. You you don't get that, right? Oh, no, I get that. Do you? Even, oh, of course. I think everyone even now? gets it. Even now. When? Um, I don't really want to call out the situation. <laughs> they, they might actually listen and they'll know. Um, no, I get it when I'm in environments where I'm at a table, and oftentimes it'll be a board table. Yeah. And I'm about to pick up the chair of a an advisory panel, which is, you know, very, very important in terms of the mahi that this panel does. It's a sustainability panel, mm. uh, and I am not a sustainability guru. I know I get tagged as somebody who's deeply invested in sustainability, which I love, which yeah. is a true. Um, but am I, um, you know, the scope three emissions solar panel, um, you know, am I the guru, the technical lead on that in the universe? Absolutely not. But do I have a perspective about the, the good that we can do for future generations if we behave correctly now? Yes. So when you get into a room of technical experts, then you start thinking, okay. what, what value am I adding? Why am I at this table? And you've got to really stop and take a breath and think for a minute. Why did they bring me to this table? There is a reason, and you've just got to harness that so you can step forward into the techos. Yeah, but you see, people find that really hard, which mm. is why I'm fascinated by the fact that you still feel a little bit like you get the imposter. And by the way, I, I actually don't think that's true. But anyway... <laughs> No, no, I don't, because because you just explained what, how you're able to find your way through yeah, that, yeah. Um, and um, that is a that is a quality. Is it a quality or is it an attribute or a skill that that people find really hard mm. to kind of attain? Is that more natural? Do you think or learned behaviour over time? It's definitely learned behaviour. Anything. Okay. I don't like. I don't think any of us are born with innate abilities to do these things. The trick, I think, is recognizing or knowing yourself well enough. That you know, that you know your work ons, that you recognise the signs of the moments where you feel a little out of your depth, or you feel a little overwhelmed by the people whose company you find yourself in, and being able to to rectify that quickly. Yeah, that's the trick, I think. So um, yeah, so it's definitely true. But what I don't let happen by design is I don't let those feelings inhibit my ability to push forward. That's, I think, the difference between having imposter syndrome and letting it sort of cripple you in a way. Yeah. Because that happens. It's just so common, and and it's not a cliche. It's that it happens more often than not to, to women. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually going to ask you about your work-ons, and, and then I think we'll come back to particularly women in governance roles, because New Zealand has advanced. And as we're seen to be, I think, still a model of a great Western liberal society, still have an issue, has an issue with female representation, Māori wahine representation on governance roles in this country. But I, I just want to hold that and come back to work-ons. What are your work-ons, if you don't mind me asking? No, I don't mind you asking at all. Let me just think about that. <laughs> uh, 
what are my work-ons? And obviously they, those would have changed over time from when you were 25 in LA to now. Yeah. What are they currently though? My work-ons now are actually still, if we go kind of all the way back to university, probably are in that Māori space. So I... Really, Rachel? Oh, Yeah. Only Even after all these years of commitment to... Ones. No, okay. yeah, it's definitely not a commitment to Te Māori, to, um, you know, the Māori economy and all of the things that I involve myself in. It's more that personal, you know, so real. And as an example, over my lifetime, I've been in positions of leadership where I end up speaking often and publicly and my real has always been really event-based and so I'll be rolling into an event, I'll have a chat to... Um, friends to help me organise myself so I can acknowledge the right people in the right way and so forth. But I, it, it wasn't really sticking. And I also now know in retrospect, it must have been really awful to listen to. <laughs> you know, like I got the words out, but like I you know, remember doing it. And the, the, the clincher, because when I do it internationally, no dramas, uh-huh. you know, absolutely fine. You do it to world leaders until the cows come home. <laughs> um, but the minute I had a moment, and it was last year, is when I, when I did this again, Mistakenly, and I looked down at Hedwini Parata, and he's like, <laughs> I could see his face with like a speech bubble coming out of it, like, what are you actually saying? <laughs> and I was like, in that minute, I was like, that is the last time I'm putting myself up like that. Because I think the people who have been helping me over the years, they estimate my real ability the way they estimate my ability in English. And so they put me in the same space. So for the last eight months, I've been at Tuanango Aotearoa. Doing baby Māori, which is amazing. <laughs> it's so good. You know, like going back to basics, you know, I can tell you how to tell the time if you like. I'm not going to. <laughs> don't ask me to. Um, but, you know, those sorts of things. And it's just really, really uh, reassuring to go back and actually get back into a basic state mm. when the rest of your life is not in a basic state. Yeah. You know, you last year I did chair a meeting between the president of Chile and the leaders of the Philippines and Japan and so forth, that doesn't frighten me at all. Mm. Real, like most people who are on that journey, that scares the living daylights out of me, but I'm, I'm super happy to be back in the basic lane. I, um, I, I, I think that's worthy of high praise. Let me, let me say why. <clears throat> because um, one thing is for many of us who've kind of undertaken a bit of a journey, we're not really willing to unlearn the bad habits we've picked up. <laughs> no, we're not. Well, you know, I'll be honest. I think people who, and particularly males, um, Katani and Matata said one time, you know, the biggest problem with te reo Māori is you Māori men. Because we don't like uh, not seeing to be knowing something. Because mm. they're arrogant and too confident and we're not willing to unlearn the bad mistakes that we've picked up. And, you know, I, I think she's right. So, which is why I think it's worthy of high praise that you've gone back and started again. Mm. Because... That means that you won't pick up the bad stuff <laughs> that many of us still have as we articulate our way through a conversation into the Māori. But I think also the other thing is um, is your ability to do that as, because you're recognised as a leader. Mm. And so that will also, I think, inspire lots of other people who have taken that journey uh, who, who aren't business leaders for Te Māori and in the world. And the other thing that comes to my mind is what have you picked up from that journey that has actually helped whether it be discipline or transferable skills that has helped in what you're doing in, in your everyday job? Or is the everyday stuff just so complex there is no relationship, there is no transferable skill quality? 
Yeah, it's, it's so, you have to be supremely organised. That's, I think, the transferable yeah. quality. You know, people ask, how do you, how do you organise it or how do you get sorted? And, like, and there are people in the class who <laughs> they'll say, oh, I'm really behind on my homework. And I'm like, really? Because I'm up to date. I've got a couple, <laughs> I've got a couple of things on my plate. But, you know, like my homework is done. One, because I'm a really I'm nerdy, girly swat. Yeah. But also you've just got to organise yourself. It's that important to you. There are different reasons that people would do it. And the reason that I'm doing it with my sister, that's more about, you know, cultural survival you know, so that's you know your own your own commitment to that. So um, yeah, oh, no, it's so fine. you and your sister are doing it. Yeah, together. you were doing it together. Oh, wow. So um, and that's why you can't ask me the time because by the time I tell you the time, it'll be five minutes later, <laughs> so, and it will not be the same time. <laughs> is that? Do you think that it's one of your really good skills? Is your ability to be able to plan and organise, given what's going on? I mean, uh, you know, leadership positions, um, and also you know, basketball franchise. Stuff, you know, um, there's a lot on your plate. Yeah, there is. Yeah. How do you do that? Yeah, I, how do I do it? I, it just, you know, like, I, here's my theory everyone is busy. I've got a lot on my plate, and every day, you know, minutes within days are all really different. But I am better because of the pace at which I work and the diversity of things that I apply myself to. And the learnings across the board, I think, make you better at the at the parts. Right. So, so I really enjoy that feeling of momentum, and that's me, and that's how that's how I tick, and that's how I'm made. And then I like to think about relativity. If I'm a solo mother with three kids, that is busy, mm. that is tough. And so, me going from one Zoom to another, firing off a few emails, you know, jumping in on board meetings, or you know, doing the things that I do in the way that I work relatively straightforward like when I have a bad day it's recoverable mm. you know if a midwife my sister's a midwife she has a bad day it's a really bad day mm. you know I have a tough day working I'm tired at the end of it um, a sharer has a big day and they're you know doubled over in pain because they've had a really long hard day so relativity is something that I kind of try to keep in mind if I think I've had a tough one awesome Okay, so I wanted to come back to the, the particularly Māori women in leadership positions and particularly in governance, <clears throat> and you're seen to be um, someone who's – role model is not the right word, and actually a lot of people don't like that word. But you are seen to be – when people talk about Māori women in leadership, they'll talk about you and Mavis Mullins and, 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 and the like. Why do we still have an issue, do you think, and a lack of representation and a lack of our in governance positions – in New Zealand, which is seen to be like an indigenous leader in this stuff. Mm. I think that the people who are making the appointments have a very orthodox view of what they think fits that space. What is that? Well, it's prior governance experience. It's having run, and governance I mean sort of Western-oriented governance. It's not your marae boards, but I'll come back to that. Yep. Um, you know, it's it's having run or been senior exec in one of our big entities. Um, it's it's also those you know those hard skill sets. Have you, you know, have you got an MBA? Have you done your degree? All of the things that we know are helpful when you're getting a job. They also help you then roll into governance. So that, it's a very orthodox definition of capable. And so when you're looking for that, you can find it in the Māori space, you can find it in the Wahine Māori space, um, but it, it's not a deeply, it's not a very deep pool. But if we redefined capable, 
you know, I've, I've got a great friend, we've got a great mutual friend who was not accepted for a governance role because they didn't think she had enough governance experience. She's run her iwi entity for nearly 20 years. Hmm. And if you, like running that bad boy, you could run, you could chair the biggest um, entity in the country, publicly listed, you know, in your sleep, outside of obviously the regulations you'd need to um, bone up on. But, you know, I just think that we've got a too narrow a definition of what's capable. Mm. And if you look back then, and it's going to take time to build our skills and build our presence in the executive space as well, because that then rolls mm. you into governance, if you wish it to do so, mm. which I don't think everyone needs to find themselves into the governance space, honestly. Um, but yeah, that's that's why is because we're just looking at things in the same way. There's not people are not taking risks and saying, "We think you've got what it is to to make it. Let me bring you in." So all the boards I join, I try to immediately create associate director positions as a way to start bringing our young in governance or young in age mm. um, Maori through, so they can see what it looks like. One, so then they can opt in or opt out. It's up to them. Um, but also we get to start building the next tier of governance. And are those for a year or three years? A couple or? of years, actually. Okay. So Moana, we've got um, one wahini watane, and it's for two years. Okay. Can't do anything in a year. A year is a glimpse, so two years. And do they have – so they don't have voting rights, but otherwise they're full participation? Yep. 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 Does it work? Uh, well, I was an associate director at Wakatu. Okay. And in terms of taking risks, that's an organisation that takes risks. So I was an associate director, so was Karenza, so was Miriana, so was Johnny, Jeremy Banks. All of us have found ourselves back on the board proper yeah. or in other roles. Um, Within a quick period of time. Yeah. Relatively. Yeah, okay. yeah, it does work. Okay. Why are Māori organisations, and look, I hate to throw it out there, but I'm going to say it, iwi organisations, mm. not as wanted as they should be in that regard then, do you think? Because, again, um, if you, I know it's starting to change, but for a long time, and it took so long for a lot of our Wahine Māori to, to, to even get on the board, let alone mm. become the chairs of these boards of iwi governance. And I know it's started to change, but we, we st- it still feels like we're slow on Does the it? It's funny because I – and maybe it's because – Maybe it's that phenomenon when, you know, you've never noticed a kind of car until you buy one and then you see them everywhere. So I see Māori women leaders and in in governance and in exec roles everywhere. But it could be because, you know, I'm in a bit of a bubble and and I'm surrounded by them. Um, But I do think think we are making way. I do think that we've got some phenomenal women in those places. And when you get them into those places, they create a new space for young women – whomever that looks like, you know, they will make way. Yep. Mm. Okay. And I know you were going to make a, a point about um, marae governance, <laughs> um, which is an interesting one for me because I was at one stage the only living trustee of our Urupa committee. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, Meetings but, must but, have been awesome. Oh, yeah. but, you know, some of the complexities you have to deal with, you know, for example, um, uh, you know, when when someone gets cremated mm. and what you do with the ashes and does it go in the wahita bush or they go in a vessel and then go in the wahita bush or they go somewhere, somewhere else or do you sprinkle it over the farm or whatever. Mm. You know, uh, um, people who get amputated, can they put their leg in the, in the wahita and then, and then the rest of them follows afterwards and book their plot and all that kind of thing. You know, fascinating stuff. But you're right, there is a level of, there's a high level of complexity involved yeah. in marae governance that I don't think people appreciate, right? Well, as the secretary of our marae committee, I really like to say, and actually that was a way of, you know, like I have been doing that for two or three years now, uh, which I love, you know, but it's 
it's so hard at the marae level. And you look at, and ours is a perfect example, it's largely, you know, there's probably two whānau who are there, ahika, and, and the, the weight on them, you know, it's just immense. And we're a tiny marae, and, mm. and there's lots that we need to do, and there's not very many people to do it. And, you know, one minute you're dealing with painting, peeling walls, and the next minute you're being asked to provide a cultural impact assessment for the farmer who wants to get an additional resource consent for his water take. Like, this is bananas. Like, it's just um, setting up a system for total failure. Not because the people are not smart enough or don't have the attributes they need to, to, to lean into that, but it's just the same group of people being drawn on over and over and over again. So, mm. yeah, it's complex. And, yeah, you, and you need to just keep showing up if you want to be a part of that conversation. I, I, when I first started going, I went for a whole year and never really said anything. And I'm pretty sure they were like, who's that mute weirdo? Who's <laughs> the, like, the one who's not talking and keeps turning up to the yeah, meetings? Yeah, yeah. It's only the chair of Trust Stadium and Warner Pacific, yeah. But I didn't want to be, a, you know, I didn't want to roll in and be a, a, a dick and, and start trying to solve everything. But, yeah, so. Do you, is that your advice then for no matter what anyone does? is to try and get home and be a part of those committees simply because, as you say, well, not just simply because, but because you're right, we rely on the ahika all the time. Mm. You know, we might say we want them on the tomato. If they're not on the pie pie, we're like, where are they? Mm. You know, well, where, where have you been 80 months ago? Kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> so is that a bit of the advice, I think, is, as well, as no matter what we're doing, is to try and get home and just help? Oh, that's been our experience. You know, my you know your grandmother, my grandmother passed, and then a few years later, her sister passed, and she was that last kind yeah. of connection through. So, and it was only a few years ago, I rang up my uncle Tewadi, and I was like, "Man, I'm really feeling, really feeling a little bit discombobulated." I, mean, I think you know something is not landing for me, and he goes, "Oh, you know, just start coming back with me." And I said, "Okay, good." That's when I went to the meetings and didn't speak for eighteen months. <laughs> um, and and yeah, you've just got to keep showing up because the more you show up, the more familiar you are to to the whanau and vice versa, and then trust grows, and you know, and then it's just a really beautiful homecoming, really. Yeah, but yeah. those who we can get crunchy. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> they can. Well, you know, we're so we're so cute and collegial that not so much in ours. Oh yeah, true. Yeah, I was speaking on behalf of Napoli. Oh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you have trauma that you're welcome to share. It's a massive generalisation, but I think most people would say an accurate one, particularly if you're from Napoli. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, there's a whole bunch of other things I want, I want to discuss with you, and I didn't, I didn't actually want it to be a you know throw a question and you answer because there's, you know, it's more a conversational mm. thing. But there's so much that I want to talk to you about. Why become a franchise? Is it owner, holder, whatever it is, of a, of a basketball team? Why do that? Given everything else you're doing in the world, you know, yeah. you were talking about President of Chile and APEC and all that kind of thing. Why do that? Lots of reasons. So the... the, the Least of which is money, right? Least Definitely of which. not. <laughs> Unless you're talking about putting money in and then <laughs> Never like, it again. totally nailing the brief. Um, no, the basketball is fascinating. So at the end of 2021... You know, Basketball New Zealand created the opportunity to bid on the franchise rights for one of five regions mm. for the semi-pro women's league. And uh, I, along with my husband and about six others, decided we'd tip in and have a knock at the Lower North Island. Got it. Amazing. Had a really short amount of time to build the team, build the brand, do all of the things you need to do to create a professional yep. team. Why do it? Because I, from a personal standpoint... 
I'm deeply invested in uh, equity for women and opportunity for women. And this league offers women pay parity with their male counterparts. So that's great. So mm. we can have um, players come through domestically and internationally and raise the level of the game. And that then inspires young people to get into the game. Then they can be active. They can learn all the life skills you can through participating in a team sport. Um, my daughter is a really um, mad, keen and talented basketballer. So, you know, this is something that we can build that ultimately it might be something she wants to run. Mm. You know, it's pretty fascinating for her. She's doing sports management and business and marketing over in the States. This is the sort of thing that she can look back and go, yeah, I mean, that's a business I could get into. So there's the equity for women. There's the opportunity uh, for women. There's the inspiration for the kids. Uh, I love building businesses. This is building a sports franchise. Never done it before, mm. which in and of itself is why I would do it. Um, it's Fun. It's like a startup on speed. Wow. Mm. Winning also helps. Winning was, <laughs> winning was I'm glad you raised that actually. <laughs> Having won the, the inaugural yes, year of the league exactly. last year. Now yeah. it, it does help. It puts a big target on your back, but it helps. But as you say, New Zealand's such a, a small country. And um, and we've got some issues around sport, actually, and not, not in terms of administration, but in support mm. at local levels, at regional levels and at national levels. I mean, does that kind of stuff keep you up at night, thinking about, you know, geez, I've, I've, chipped, I've dipped in here, and yes, it's a small business, and it gives me all these other benefits. Um, but most people who look at a franchise think of the financial return of it, and even after winning the competition, the inaugural competition, you've got to go back again. Yeah, and this is a rinse and repeat exercise. But I think you will know, because you're a sports lover as well, I don't think people do it. You you can't do it for that. You can't. Yeah. A couple of things. One, you can't build it for yourself. It's not. A, it's not a glory moment. It's not about you. It's about fans and it's about players and it's about building something for its potential. So we're not building this team for the league we're playing in at the moment necessarily. You know, like it's yeah. it's an excellent league and we love being in it. Um, and it's a building block to improving the game. But we're building the Queens to be to be bigger than that. It's a brand that we've now rolled in, we've created charitable trust so we can start having really great impact with the kids, yep. creating scholarship funds because we have kids who come through who, and this is not a surprising story, you know, they don't have this, the right shoes. They've got, like, you've got three or four kids who are, come to a game and after one has finished their game, they're like throwing the shoes over to somebody else and then you know, the kids are passing the shoes and amongst themselves so they can actually play the game. So if we can alleviate that pressure then that keeps them in the game. When you crack the New Zealand system, it becomes very elitist very quickly. It's very expensive to participate in um, national representation. It's crazy, but it is, because sports is so uh, pressured from the funding standpoint. So this is, this is, I guess, our little contribution to that. Yeah. But yeah, and, it, and it's fun. Like we have a, you, you know, did you go to the Women's World Cup? The, yes, I did, yep. Yeah, amazing environment. Yeah, families. Um, it's a, kids. It's, but women's sport is different. Yeah, you go to you go to women's sport because there's an atmosphere and an environment that is mm. fun orientated. Mm. I, I look. I'll be honest. I hate going to rugby games now. Mm. Uh, you know, Super Rugby test matches. Completely different vibe. It's actually does my head in, to be honest with you. Um, and so, yeah, right, going to, and obviously, Tokomanawa Queen's um, supporter, but can't go to the games because I'm currently domiciled. Not a good excuse, actually. Yeah, I, sh I should have gone to games. 
I will try to sell. But we do, you know, like we've got, so we bring in all of the, you know, to that network conversation, we've got King Kapisi as our MC, and then we've got DJ Raw as our DJ. We've got a crew of dancers who are now, we've partnered up with, you know, clothing. And so that's, you know, that's, they're the UNO crew. So we want, having been to loads of NBA games over the years overseas, we mm. wanted to create this experience, like a fun party. I'm going to have a good time. The result will be the result, yep. but I'm going to have a really good time. Okay. And so that's the way we're trying to build the, um, the experience. Is the approach then the same approach that you took when you started a new company like Oho? Which, again, feels like, felt like, completely different skill set. Following off on what you've been doing for... I want to say day job, but actually you've got five. But anyway, <laughs> but what you were doing is yeah. complete. It's completely different, Rachel. Yeah, that, you that, that is a, you're right. It is completely different. I've never built a services business. The businesses that I have built over the over time have been, you know, a fishing business or a, yeah. you know restaurant pop ups or you know with corner. It's all hard goods. You can touch it and feel yeah. it. Services is something different. But I'd met my business partner Tabs a couple of years prior. She was pitching to a mutual friend of ours, you know, his, he, I think he was trying to like kind of show her off a little bit, but like, come and listen to this amazing Māori woman, she's done a pitch for us. I was like, okay, cool. So I went along and had to listen to her and I was just blown away by her talent as a brand strategist. Um, she's also Ngāpui, so, you know, congratulations. Uh, I, I may know her, On yeah. the gene pool, <laughs> the gene pool came gene through. Um, so, you know, I, I heard her and I was like, mm, this is, this is, I'm going to stay in touch. I'm, I'm going to make you my friend. Yeah. And so we stayed in touch. And then as I got to the time, end of the time at Cornwall, I thought, I need to change. This is, and it was the end of COVID and Lily only had 18 months left at school. And I yeah. thought I want to be home a little bit more. Um, so I'm going to ring and stay in touch with Tabitha and see what she's up to oh, and, and what she wants so, to do. So your friends with skills, you're inviting them into business. Um, your friends um, who don't have skills, you're inviting them to be a part of the um, Pair Party Committee. Yeah, no, okay, I've got it. I've got I it. know, <laughs> but also, also the really good friends turn up to the Pair Party. So, <laughs> yeah. So she stayed in touch with Tabs and then she, and I rang her up and said, hey, look, I, I'm going to get out. Do you want to do something? She didn't really know me from a bar of soap, and this was kind of all through COVID. We set it up through COVID. The first time we got together physically was about six months into, you know, building this business together. It was the craziest, most ill-advised way to start a business. Um, one, it was services. I don't know how to build services. Even now I've been asked, you know, how's your time in motion um, plan? And I was like, what? <laughs> oh, no, we just oh, – we work with people we like working with, yeah. and we just, you know, charge them what we feel like is fair. Yeah. Um, you know, at a certain point that will change, but we have the luxury at the moment of feeling each other out in terms of our skill sets and how we're going to perform together and who we'll bring into that equation. Uh, and Tabs is the brand strategist. I'm the business strategist. My role is to wheel it in and <laughs> – you know that's yeah. nuts. <laughs> Which hey. part, like all of it. <laughs> <laughs> I actually do. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And people won't do it. Like people wouldn't do that. Yeah. It's that feel like do you not feel fear, Rach? Uh the end of that sentence is do it anyway, right? Yeah. So yes, I feel fear. Yeah. But not I don't this sounds really sort of like bumper stickerish, but I just choose not to let it um, bowl me over because it's back to that thing like what is the worst going to happen so I leave Kono we set up Oho it doesn't pan out the way that we thought it was or would so you pick yourself up and you apply yourself in a different way yeah and I think I think the thing that strikes me about it is that the fear people have is well if things go wrong what's the impact going to be on my reputation 
Yeah. You know. Um, oh, now I am scared, actually. <laughs> Wait, wait. But actually, and it, I, that's probably also a really glib way for me to, to, to say that because there are realities about um, being able to support your lifestyle. Yeah, you know, yeah. you have a house, you have yeah. a car, you have things that you need to do and obligations in a financial sense. So as I was leaving Cornwall, you know, I did work out what do I need to survive? What do we as a finder need to survive? Yeah. And then... And then take your best guesstimate as to what that would be. There were a couple of governance roles that I had on that could, yep. you know, stretch across some of that. And then we had to work really quickly and really hard to actually start generating income out of Oho. But you, you've got to have a bit of a backup plan if you are going to go into something boots and all. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not just blind faith. There is planning. Yeah. But, but, it, awesome. but yeah, you can't be afraid of those things. Yeah, that's that's been the overriding lesson out of this corridor that I've got, um, which will which will be a lesson that a lot of people will take um, as they watch this. Um, but but there's also the philosophical thing, and then there's the actual physical motion and movement that you have to undertake to do that. Um, and I think we've we've learned a bit of you from that, which is which is great. I want to talk to you also about particularly through your role through Moana Pacific, there's a lot of concern, you know, aquaculture, climate change, all that kind of thing. Mm. I mean, do, does any of that stuff keep you awake at night? Uh, yeah, it does. That, it that, does. that okay. sort of thing does worry me. It worries me, you know, what we're doing and how we're doing it. That doesn't concern me. No. You know, I know that we behave and fish and undertake sustainable and responsible practices. I know that we are entrusted with taonga assets, for Māori, I'm intensely proud of the fact that Moana is the only collectively owned iwi asset that we have, mm. that everyone has ownership in. There's just not another. Um, do I think it's like the best returning asset we could ever find ourselves in as Māori? No, but mm. that's that's just a fact of the primary industry. But it is an incredible space to work in and play in. And, and also the part that weighs on me is getting it right because you feel that obligation and that responsibility to iwi Māori to perform. But there's also a lot of noise about the future of food yep. and what people are doing internationally. I mean, how aware do you have to be? I mean, how much reading are you doing? Because you'll have to keep yourself across all of it, right? Yeah, you do. Uh, a lot of reading, but then you also a lot of talking. You know, the, I, I don't have to do, back to that idea of technical experts, um, you do the reading that allows you to participate in the conversation and provide yep. the requisite amount of direction uh, without being the um, guru necessarily in a space. But you have that broad perspective, which yep. is necessary. The climate change work, the um, lightening our footprint, those are the things I think we th there's no we just can't move fast enough to do that. It's We've got to move faster as, as a company, as an industry, as a nation. Yep. Those are the things that really do occupy my mind. And the threat of things like automation. I don't think that's a threat. I think it's you that, don't. Okay. No, I don't. I don't at all. I don't think. I don't probably, unlike others, think that that will displace people necessarily. I think it'll make jobs easier. I think it'll make jobs more rewarding. I think it'll make um, people. It'll take away probably some of the more mundane repeat style exercises that people are engaged in and, and elevate them into more interesting, knowledgeable positions. Yeah. Does the idea of, you know, creating high-skilled jobs, high-skilled workforce, that kind of thing, because we're still talking about primary industry and there would be a perception that there's a lid on that, that you can only go so far. Um, is, is that something that you've grappled with and think about? And if so, what, what does that look like? 
Is there a lid on it? Can we only go so far in terms of trying to develop high school to high paid jobs in an industry like primary industry, particularly with? Well, if I think about Māori in that space, we're really good at um, we're really good at the base level operations. You know, we're great orchards, we're great farmers, we're yeah. great fishermen. Um, the trick is how do you start to move us up the value chain? How do you start to increase our ownership in the spaces mm. in which we're operating? And so you can then elevate your people into those spaces. I'm more interested in how can we pay people or ensure that people can work, live, not be in in-work poverty? Because there's so many people in Aotearoa who are in-work poverty. Got two income-earning parents you know, who are out there working but still find themselves in posit- poverty in their household. Mm. That's a crazy situation. So how, as a Māori organisation, can we lift that so at a bare minimum the people who are working with us and for us are not feeling that, that pain? Mm. Okay, so let's go back to the <coughs> law student um, and, uh, and where we're at now. So what law student, that would have been 10 years ago. Maybe 12, <laughs> I think, maybe 12, yeah. So I think 10 years, 12 years from now, what, what are you doing? What is Rachel Tolale doing? <sighs> well, that because make the Hurricanes me, would have won. That will make me 45. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Hurricanes would have won five Super Rugby Championships by then. In exactly, Trust we'll have a roof on the stadium. <laughs> yeah, the yellow seats will be gone, I know. Um, what am I doing? You know, I actually would love to think that I'm actually still doing a bit more of the same. It, there'll still be that. I, st- I think I'll still be um, have a myriad of activities on my plate. I would like to think that in twelve years, Lily will be thirty. Maybe she's like thinking about babies. Um, I've been, you know, requested four, so there's that. You know, I just think maybe treasurer of the Marae Committee. It's <laughs> a lot, dude. I don't know. It's like. I don't know if I want that pressure. All those audits, yeah. Yeah. No, I just think a little bit more of the same. I I think that uh, in my dream scenario, you know, I've managed to find a way to get through to an immersion space so I can, like, really learn. And that'll, that'll, I think, be a crazy unlock. Yeah. Um, But but work-wise, I just think a little bit more of the same, you know, growing more businesses, growing more people, creating opportunities, which I just love doing, for... Um, others to, to step into. There isn't a chair role that you'd love to do, that you'd love to have. You probably can't say, actually. Now that I think about it, it's a really dumb question. <laughs> <laughs> um, nationally or internationally, actually. Or, 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 actually, internationally. Are, are you so focused be on being at home at the moment that you just want to be at home and and you've done enough? No, an international one would be pretty fun. Yeah. You know, I think that... Um, to have the ability, it, although it's in saying that, the boards that I am on do have me travelling traveling internationally, so right. I get, I get my fill of that. Yeah. Um, but I think at the moment I'm starting to think, where do I really want to lean into most in the next little while? I know that my lane is, has been largely the primary industry, mm. which I do really, really enjoy. Um, and I think I enjoy it because my favourite days working um, prior to where I'm working at at the moment, uh, have been in an orchard or on a fishing boat or, you know, doing a shift at the muscle factory. I just, that is the best day. The people are so generous and authentic and giving um, that those are my favourite days. So, you know, I'm starting to think about how do you take all of that and roll it in something that is fun, interesting and actually has more meaningful impact. Yeah, and, and I would have thought, you know, the idea of, a, <clears throat> uh, you know, 
university students, Māori university students of Victoria Reunion every year w- would be enticing too, organising that. Yeah, you should definitely <laughs> do that. Do you know what would be awesome though? I would love to take up something like a fellowship, if, you know, at Stanford. I love Stanford. I've been a couple of times and, really? and learnt there. It's a great environment. I really enjoy – you almost learn by osmosis. Yeah. It's just a really great vibe. But something like that for a year would be quite good fun. Yeah, I mean, I, I did a course at Stanford and um, at the time there was about – oh, there was about three other Māori there and we all kind of looked at each other and went, how good is this? <laughs> you yeah. know, just no, totally. great weather. <laughs> but, but, you know, just that you, that campus is amazing. It's phenomenal. And, yeah. I, you know, the stories of people who come out of there, because I just think they unleash your mind. They, yeah. they, they, they pump up that idea of, like, have the crazy idea, craziest idea you've got and then just make it happen. But I did do a course there for six weeks Interestingly, it was like 200 people from around the world. There were these huge entities, people running oil companies and, you know, Microsoft. And they had tens of thousands of employees. And they said to me, oh, what do you do? And I'm like, I run a family business in Tatuihu. You know, so really, really tiny. And so you'd think that sort of thing would be um, overwhelming. But the overwhelming feeling I got when I came out of six weeks of learning nonstop, 24-7 for that time, was actually... We are so far ahead of the game as Māori. I was just super reassured by that feeling of we know our place in the world, we know our relationship to Te Taia, we know the you know the reverence and um, the difference we have to you know people, beings, places that are bigger than us and from whom we derive our strength and power. So I'm like, cool, you know, like I get all the learnings. I loved it, but mm. I'm I'm good. Like I think we are like catch up. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. There's lots of things that we think naturally about that that are kind of not in their headspace, right? Which which really freak me out. Totally like indigenous thinking is like a superpower in and of yeah. itself. And I think the the quicker we can move indigenous thinking out of a, like a DNI space, which is a crazy space for it to live in, when you are those indigenous people, like we don't need to be regarded as diverse or mm. by design included, although in fact that is the case. Um, but when it's us talking to each other or about each other, it's it's not diverse or inclusive. It's just who we are. So indigenous thinking is us. So yeah, that's one of the, I guess the the endeavours of Oho is to advance that place of Indigenous thinking, not just in Māori businesses. In fact, Māori businesses probably need us less, need us less than non-Māori. Mm. Rachel, I've loved it. Go the Queens. Go the Queens. Go all. Go the Hurricanes. <laughs> go, yeah. go. <laughs> and now we've lost that audience. E hoa te koe, e whai wahi mai koe kia mata. Kia ora. 